Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor. Um, many of you know me pretty well, and we've talked about this from the stage, that I'm a hypochondriac. So when something actually happens in my life, I like to let people know about it. I threw my back out this weekend, so I'm basically telling everyone I know that that happened. So if I collapse here on the stage, you know what the problem is. I'm at that point now where it's like if you bend a little bit forward or like a little bit backward, that's it, you're done. So here we are. Um, if it's your first time, let me explain to you, there it goes, let me explain to you what we're doing in this series. It's called Follow Me. And we're taking a look at the teachings of Jesus Christ. But more particularly, what we're doing is we're taking a look at the method in which he taught. If you saw on the bumper, it was talking about this idea that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. They surrounded him no matter where he went. And he was just so able to speak truth into their lives in a way where he told them the truth, he explained what was going on in their life, and yet they never seemed to be offended. And yet so many times as Christians, non-Christians just don't want to be around us. And our hope is that this series will be somewhat of a guide for us as Christians, that we can go out in the world and we can be just a little bit less offensive when we talk about our faith. The reason this is important is because the night before Jesus died, he made a prayer to God. And he goes to God the Father and he goes, look, I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to come back to you. Okay? And he starts praying about the disciples. He says, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. It's just, that's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. But to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. He continues. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And then he talks about Christians today, you guys here in this church. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is this. When you become a Christian, when you say yes to Jesus, as we like to put it, you're not just given a ticket into heaven. You don't just get sucked up to God right away. Rather, they leave you here. And Jesus says, I'm leaving you here because I've got a mission for you. I need you to go out in the world. I need you to tell people, your friends, your family, your coworker. I need you to tell people about me. And our hope is that this series will give you some tools to do that job a little better. What I want to talk to you about today is Jesus' greatest message. Okay? So all throughout this series, we've been talking about this idea that Jesus is a master evangelist that he is able to masterfully talk about God and the message that God wants him to tell every single person on this earth. But Jesus is also a master storyteller. And his favorite way to teach people is to use parables. Now, if you're not familiar with a parable, a parable is a fictional story, it's a story Jesus would make up, to tell a real truth. Jesus loved using stories because he knew that humans learn best through stories. That's why we love books. That's why we love movies. Jesus understood that stories have power. He understood that stories for humans help us to see more, help us to kind of see beyond our current reality, help us to care more about people that we might not normally care about, and they help us to hope more, that, that, that there's something greater in this world than ourselves. So today what I want to talk to you about is the prodigal son, the most famous story that Jesus ever now, if you are a new Christian in this room, and I know we have a lot of new Christians that come to this church, let me kind of talk to you about this story. This is the kind of story that you will hear over and over and over again throughout your career as a Christian. Churches will often talk about this story multiple times in one year. Because not only is this story great, this story is a perfect 
encapsulation of Christianity in general. It's a perfect picture of who God is, and it's a perfect picture of what we kind of struggle with as humans. So let me kind of set the scene for this great story. Jesus' audience is a mixed group, the scripture talks about. It's filled with a bunch of different people. In one group, you've got what the scripture says are sinners and tax collectors. Now, the reason they separate sinners from tax collectors is because they didn't want to insult the sinners by lumping them in with the tax collectors. And if you're not familiar with what the tax collectors are, they're not like IRS agents, right? I know April 15th is coming up for all of us. None of us look forward to paying taxes. But when the Bible talks about tax collectors, it's not talking about the IRS. It's talking about Jewish people who went to the Roman authorities and bought the right to tax their fellow Jews. So it'd be like me going to Broward County, paying off some official, getting a paper that would now allow me to tax every single person here in this room. So they weren't popular. But what's interesting is that you have tax collectors and sinners crowding around the feet of Jesus. Perfectly shows you this idea that people who were nothing like Jesus loved Jesus, wanted to be in his presence. Also in this group, you got the good old boys. You got the Pharisees, you got the, the scribes, the Jewish religious leaders who have popped up in every single week. These people who constantly look at the fact that Jesus is eating and drinking and socializing with sinners, and they go, What kind of rabbi is this? This guy calls himself a man of God, and he's hanging out with the tax collectors. He's hanging out with the sinners. Really? Hmm. So you have two groups. You got one group who thinks they have been alienated from God alienated from society, and they think that God will never approve of them. And then you got another group who thinks they are so good and so righteous that God has already approved of them. And the interesting thing is this, both groups are wrong. And now Jesus has to speak into the hearts simultaneously of both of these groups. So he tells three stories but we're only focusing on the last story, the prodigal son. And it's in Luke 15. He says this. To illustrate the point further, because he's essentially telling the same point in three stories that are building on each other. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. It's important because there's two groups. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Essentially, this kid is saying, hey, dad, uh, with all due respect, but can we just pretend like you're dead? Because really, the only thing I want from you is your money. So can we just, you know, call a spade a spade and just can you sell everything? Can you liquidate it? And can you just give it to me? Now, if you're a parent in the room, how would you feel if your son or your daughter came up to you and said this? I mean, would you smack them? Would you be horribly hurt? I mean, imagine what this feels like to have your child basically say to you, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I can tell you one thing. The original audience, no matter what group they were in, would have been appalled by this story. To see a child disrespect their parent in this way would have been wildly inappropriate for this Jewish culture. And Jesus sees this in their eyes. He sees that his audience is really agitated by this, so he appeases them. And he says, so the father disinherited his son and drove him away from his house. Justice is done. How dare a child disrespect a parent like this? See, the problem, though, is that I made this up. 
Jesus didn't say this. This is what the audience wanted to hear. This is what the audience expected. But rather, Jesus said, so the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Audience hear this and go, wait, 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 wait. Huh? Yeah, yeah, no. He sold everything and he handed it to two sons. And I've got to imagine that the original audience would lose their mind. There was no rebuke. There was no discipline. He just goes along with it and hands over the cash. Continues on. He says, so a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. You know, the reality is this. They live in a small village. Word would have gotten out about what this son has done to his dad. And the reality is that if he didn't leave, probably mob rule would take over and they probably might hurt this kid. So he leaves. He goes to a distant land. And it says, and there he wasted all of his money on wild living. Essentially, he heads out to Vegas, takes all his dad's money, and he blows it on booze, and he blows it on women, okay? He's like one of those kids you see on Instagram with dad's money, buying the champagne in the club and spraying it around. And this is what we're dealing with with this kid. It continues on. It says, about the time his money ran out, and we don't know if that's weeks or months, we're not really sure. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. It continues. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So Jesus is painting this picture here of this kid that has really gone off the deep end. That, that he took all the inheritance, he headed out on his own, right? And he started living like his best life. I'm just going to go do me. I'm not apologizing for anybody. I'm just going to go live my best life. And all of a sudden, he finds himself far from home. Literally and figuratively. I mean, all of a sudden, he finds himself doing things that never in a million years would he ever think that he'd be doing. I mean, he's literally at this point contemplating eating pig food. Pig food. So he wises up. He says to himself, you know, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. He says, I'm going to go home to my father. I'm going to come to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against both heaven, God, and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. He says, I, I, I've messed up. I recognize this. I have made a mistake. And he's saying, I, I have done such a sin that I have forfeited our relationship. That whatever we had, I get it, it's not going to be there before. Whatever love was there is not there now. But, but can, you just, can you just take me on as one of your hired servants? You know what he's doing here is he's rehearsing an apology. Have you ever done that? You do it a lot when you're a kid. You know, you mess up at school and you know the teacher's going to call your parents and like you're walking home and you're going, all right, this is not going to be good. But I just got to get it out. I just got to go. I'm going to go to mom first because that's generally the first place you go. I'm going to go to mom first and I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. I'm going to explain what I did and, and I'm just going to, I'm going to pray for the best. I see this man rehearsing this apology, and it lets me know that, you know, saying sorry takes courage. 
Saying you're sorry, saying you've messed up, admitting you failed, admitting you've wandered far from home, that takes courage. And you could say what you want about this kid, but he's admitting that he made a mistake. He's manning up to it. But what's so powerful about this interaction is that this kid doesn't live in America 2019. This kid's a first century Jew. This kid knows that because of what he did, the law of Moses requires that he be stoned to death. And with all of this in mind, he's saying, maybe, just maybe, my dad will show me mercy. Maybe he won't stone me. Maybe he'll just allow me to work as a servant. And I think the reality is that so many of us don't apologize because we're afraid of the consequences. We don't go to those we've hurt. We don't go to God admitting that we're far from home because we are afraid that something else might happen. And we keep running, and we keep running, and we keep running. So he returned home, it says, to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Now the original audience at this point tunes back in. All of a sudden they're tuned back in because they realize that, oh, here it is, finally. Dad's going to step up. Dad is going to do what any good Jewish father would do, step up and do the right thing. Get the stones. Get the stones. This kid's got to go. This kid needs to face what he's done. This kid needs to get what's coming to him. This kid needs to get what he's afraid is going to happen. Jesus says, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. He embraced him and he kissed him. And I've got to imagine the, you know, the original audience hears this and goes, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. Jesus, what are you saying? I mean, first of all, you're a rabbi and you're teaching us about some father who is blatantly ignoring the law of Moses. That's the first thing. And how about the second thing? You're talking about a father who has humiliated himself by running to his son. So you may not realize that, but for ancient Jews, running... As a man, that was humiliation. Because for them, in order to run, they would have to lift up their robes. They'd have to expose their legs to the public. And that was an absolute no-no. And they're saying, Jesus, this dad, not only does he ignore the law, but he humiliates himself chasing after a scoundrel. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on, he goes, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. And I love the fact that it says quick. There's no probationary period. He doesn't say, well, I'm glad you're back, but we need to have a conversation. Or I'm glad you're back, but I told you so. Or kiss my ring, or get on your knees and beg for forgiveness. He doesn't ask for some long, protracted apology. It's just quick. Get the robe and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening, we must celebrate this. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine, the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. I just have to imagine that this story was just unbelievably confusing for the original audience. The story that Jesus was telling, this world that he was painting, was so different than everything that they knew. 
This, this world that Jesus was painting for them is not a world that they knew. It's not the way that the world that they lived in works because they knew that sinners are to be made outcasts, pushed to the side and forgotten about. You don't let sinners off the hook. You don't welcome them back into the family. You don't throw them a party. Now remember, you've got the one group who is the tax collectors and the sinners. And I've got to imagine as they're hearing this, they're just saying, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. Is he saying what I think he's saying? Because they know how these parables work. They know one character always represents God. They know another character always represents themselves. And they're saying, is Jesus saying what I think he's saying? Is he saying that maybe, just maybe, God will forgive us? That maybe, just maybe, in spite of everything that I've done, that God might welcome me home? Now remember, there's another character in the story. It's the older brother. We haven't heard much from him. We know he stayed behind. We know he never left. He gets word. Little brother's back. And dad's throwing him a party. And he's not happy. The older brother was angry, it says. And he wouldn't go in the house. And so his father came out and begged him. Again, humiliating for this father. He came out and begged him. said, please, just come in the house. But the brother goes, stop, dad. Listen, all these years, all these years, I've slaved for you. Look at that word that he used. I've slaved for you. That's how he sees the relationship with his dad. I've slaved for you. I never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met an angry Christian who's just mad? Have you grew up with one? Maybe you went to church with an angry Christian. Do you know why they're angry? Most often, a Christian is angry because they believe that they deserve something from God that someone else might get. And when they look around the world and they see people who are not as good as they are getting a blessing from God, it makes them mad. And, and they start thinking to themselves, I'm a Christian. I'm a good Christian. I go to church every Sunday. I volunteer, I go to small group, I tithe 10% of my money to the church, I stayed in this marriage, I raised these kids, I deserve that blessing. See, the problem is, with these angry Christians, they're full of pride. They're self-centered. And they're self-righteous. And what's unusual is that every once in a while, something slips out of their mouth, where they see, let's call it, a non-Christian, or someone who actually might be a, a bad person excelling in the world, getting richer, getting more power, and they'll actually say things like, mm, they're going to get what's coming to them. You just wait and see. You, you just wait and see what's going to happen to them. Trust me. Mark my words. It's like they're almost rooting for hell, and it's the strangest thing. See, the reality is that they may be Christians, sure, but they are nothing like Jesus. The brother says, all these years, all these years I've slaved for you. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. And yet when this son of yours, right, distancing himself, not his brother, this son of yours, all of a sudden he waltzes back into town, squandering your money, trying to fire up his dad on prostitutes? Yeah, I didn't tell mom, dad, but guess what? He was spending the money on prostitutes. Mm, how do you like that? Okay? And all of a sudden, you celebrate him? 
by killing the fattened calf. And there it is, the fattened calf. That's what the whole thing is about. I never left. I did everything you wanted me to do. That calf, that blessing should be mine, not my brother's. And dad looks at him and says, my son, you are always with me. And I got to imagine the older brother goes, wait, 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 dad, didn't you just hear what I said? And dad goes, yeah, yeah, I, I heard everything you just said. I don't, I don't know why we're, we're talking about that because you are always with me. And that's what I value most. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He wasn't with me, but now he's alive. He's with me. He was lost. I mean, we knew where he was, but he wasn't with me. And now he's found, and he's with me. So will you come into the party? Because this party is not about what your brother deserves, okay? It's about proximity. It's about relationship with me. He's back. You never left. So will you come in? He goes, because I got two sons. I got one on that side of the house that doesn't believe they deserve to come into this party. And I got you on this side of the house who believes he doesn't deserve to get into this party. And you both are hung up on performance, not realizing that performance has nothing to do with it. It's all about relationship. So will you come in? And that's where the story ends. Jesus just leaves the story there. And we never know if the older brother makes his way in to celebrate his younger brother coming home. And I think Jesus just looks at that crowd with the tax collectors and the sinners and the scribes and the Pharisees. And he goes, guys, don't you understand? Don't you get it? God could not love you more. And there's nothing you could do that will cause him to love you less. He's dying for a relationship with you. So will you come home to be with him? That's the prodigal son. So how do we follow Jesus' lead? If it's your first time here, every single week we ask this question. We want to make sure that we can look at the way that Jesus taught, the way that Jesus interacted, and what can we learn from that interaction to give us tools as we now go out into the world and do the mission that Jesus called us to do to spread the gospel of Jesus. What can we learn from this specific interaction? Well, the first thing is this. You impact others' perception of God. Did you ever think about that? I mean, how you see God impacts the way that you reveal God to others. So let me ask you a question. What God do you preach? The way that you live your life, the way that you act, the way that you speak about God, what God do you preach? Is it an angry God? Is it a vindictive God? Is it a God that is never satisfied with your performance? Or is the God that you preach similar to the Father in this story? Merciful, gracious, 
Do you talk about a Jesus that would be willing to chase you no matter where you went? That would be willing to plead with you to reconcile with the Father? That would be willing to embarrass himself by dying on a cross, a criminal's death, solely for the reason so that you could be with the Father? Next thing we learn, and this is so important, we got to learn how to celebrate, okay? Jesus told three stories, and in every single story, it ended with a celebration. When someone was reconciled to the Father, a celebration broke out. When something that was far from God is now with God, Jesus says it is deserving of celebration. If you're a Christian in this room, you have to understand that you've been set free from your sin. You have been made right with the creator of the universe, not by anything that you have done, but by the mercy extended to you. It has nothing to do with performance. So let me ask you a question. Do your lives demonstrate joy? You see, the world looks at Christians and thinks we're all mad. They think we're angry. We protest everything. We picket everything. We complain. We grumble. I look at these Christians and I go, what are you so mad about? You're going to heaven, but they're just so angry. If you're a Christian, you've been made right with God. Do others see that? Do they see the joy in your life when you're at a birthday party or Christmas or Thanksgiving? Do they see joy in your life when you're at school or at the gym? Do they look at your life and you go, whatever you have, I want that. I need that joy in my life. What makes you so different? Or do they look at your life and they go, I'll pass. No thanks. I'm fine. The last thing that we learn is that we have to be absolutely vigilant for signs of what I'll call older brother syndrome. Jesus told three parables. And every single one of the parables, he was speaking directly into the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees. People that we would describe as holier than thou. People who thought they were so good that they just deserved God's favor for everything that they did. And they believed that sinners should just be pushed to the side and left out in the cold. And the harsh reality is that many of our churches are filled with older brothers. And it's not an age thing. It's not a generational thing. It's a heart issue. And these older brothers that are in our churches, they're Christians, but for some reason their hearts have just not been softened by the mercy of Jesus Christ. And they end up being self-righteous. And they end up being prideful. And what's so disappointing is that they end up being angry at the sinners in our community. And they're not angry at the sin. They're actually angry at sinners. These are people, okay, who don't want sinners coming to your church. These are people who don't want sinners welcomed into the family. These are people who want sinners attacked at every opportunity. And if you don't think this is real, you've got your head stuck in the sand. Because these people exist. 
And you might know them. Maybe you grew up in a house with them. Maybe you were made to feel less about yourself by an older brother. Maybe you were kicked out of a church by an angry Christian. But what Jesus shows us in this parable is that God doesn't give up on these older brothers. And we can't either, okay? I know it's so, it's so tempting to just say, I'm done. I'm going to move on. But we can't do that. Every time we run into an older brother, and by the way, folks, don't take yourself off the hook. There's a little bit of older brother in every single one of us. But every time you run into an older brother, you have to remind them of one thing. That Jesus doesn't get mad at lost things. Every single one of these parables that Jesus just told, he points this out, that God the Father never gets mad at lost things. And the reality is this, neither do you. I mean, if you lose your cell phone, you don't get angry at your phone. You might get angry at yourself, but you never get angry at your phone. And then when you find it, how happy are you? And what is the first thing you do when you find your phone? You text your buddy, found my phone. Oh, and he's like, oh, nice, I'm pumped. You text everybody because you were like, phone is lost. Keep an eye out for the phone. And they're all like, mm, it's probably gone. I saw the night you had last night. And then you find it, okay? And you're pumped and your friends are happy and everybody's celebrating because your phone is back. And all of these parables are pointing to the idea that when something is lost and now it's found, it is time to celebrate. So why do we get angry with lost people? Where's the disconnect? The problem is that we're self-righteous. The problem is that we're full of pride. And the problem is that too often, even Christians, get hung up on performance and forget that it's all about being with God. So what's the practical? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. Now, the reality with this series is that it's one big guide. It's all a bunch of practicals. But I want to give you just one thing to think about this week. As you're kind of walking around, you're doing your job, or you're at school, or you're at the gym, I would challenge you to ask yourself this question. Would Jesus recognize your God? If somehow we were able to manifest your idea of who God is, just put it right here, and Jesus walked in this room and took a look at your God, would he look at it and say, who is this? I I've, never met, I've never met this God before. Are you someone your whole life has been running from this God because you think he's vengeful? Are you someone your whole life has been slaving away for this God because you think he demands a certain level of performance to be happy with you? Or is this God that you've been worshiping, that you've been telling people about, does he look like the loving father in this story? Does he look like the person that would do whatever it takes to bring you home, including dying on a cross, the most painful and embarrassing way to die, 
to make sure that you one day could be with God the Father. I don't know where you are in life. But what Jesus makes abundantly clear in this story is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You have to understand that you always have a place in God's family. That when Jesus died on that cross, he opened up the way for you to come home. And all he's asking, just one thing. Just take one step in the direction of him. And he'll run to you. He'll do the rest of the work. He just wants you to come home. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we all could be here today. That we have a chance to talk about the greatest story that you ever told. God, I pray that if there's someone here today that just has walked so far away from home that they don't even know where they are anymore, that they have found themselves doing things that they never in a million years thought they'd be doing, living a life that they never set out to live, Lord. I pray that today they would know that their Father loves them, even still. That he is waiting for them just to come home. Lord, his goal, that they would know that your goal is not to rake them over the coals. Lord, that your goal is not to make them feel bad. Lord, that your ultimate goal is just to be with them so that they know they are loved and honored and cared about. Lord, I pray that today, if someone is struggling with this, that you would give them the courage to take that step. Lord, and if anyone is in their life, Lord, that they would come by them, support them, encourage them, and celebrate them. Lord, and the Christians in this room, I would just pray that if any single one of us has somehow allowed our hearts to get hardened to those who are different from us, I pray that today you would soften our hearts. Lord, that you would remind us that our job on this earth is to chase after the prodigal sons. To get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That we need to do whatever it takes, Lord, to get into their lives, to let them know that they are loved and that they have a place with us and in this church and in your home. Lord, I always like to pray that whatever anyone here is going through, they are lifting up their own private prayers, and I don't know what those prayers are, Lord, but you do. And they are crying out to you, Lord, to make a difference in their life. Some type of healing at some level 
I pray that right now you would meet them at the place of their need. That you would touch them in the way that they have asked you to, Lord. That they would feel your presence in a mighty and powerful way. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.